Everyone, welcome back to the Genuine Judaism podcast with David Chai and... What up, what up? It's D. Bizzle in the hizzle. All right, good job. It's David Brown. Uh, what's it called? Uh, with his classic, uh, the much-needed levity, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I think we would just want to start out by saying that this is actually how we should have started the podcast. And like, this should have been our first episode, what we're doing right now. Um, we're going to be talking about our different approaches to Jewish texts and Jewish commentaries and Jewish traditions and how we go about studying our Jewish lives and how we go about living them. Although I don't believe me and David are... Hmm. No, Judaism is, uh, is diff- our Judaism is different enough that it's, it's unique enough to us individually. But, uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, and uh, so David, you wanna you wanna tell the people anything? What do you mean? Oh, I don't know. I was just uh, I, I just started talking for like a minute. Oh no, I I I, I, I I'll follow your lead. You you go for it. Okay. Um. So this episode is just gonna be. David made a very good suggestion. Instead of asking a broad general question on our different the differences in our Jewish philosophy, we're going to actually delve into a question regarding the Jewish tradition. Um, it's actually something that is quite near and dear to all Jewish lives at the moment, and that is in particular the question of the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. For those of you who don't know, in the in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Hebrew, uh, in the Jewish sacred literature. In the Bible. In the, No, no, the Bible is for the the Nebuchs, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's the fake stuff. This is the, in the real Bible. The Old Testament. Chas Shalom. The original, uh, what's it called? The, uh, in the original Testament, in the Old Testament, fine, whatever, I just hate that word. Um, we, we, it says that the, that the house of God was destroyed on the 7th or the 10th of the month, of the Hebrew month of Av. But we, we commemorate the destruction on the 9th. And so we're going to just discuss that a little bit today and kind of talk about our approaches to um, to some kind of to some seeming discrepancy in uh, you know to, to an evolving of Jewish traditions throughout the ages, let's say. And besides that, we're going to, want to talk make sure about, we we make we make clear. Uh, you know, once we get into that, we'll we'll get into it. Fine. So we're also just going to talk about really quickly. Uh, David's going to David Brown's going to introduce two points. Um, we're going to talk about. Uh, let me see. So David Brown is just going to introduce two points. We're going intru- He's going to introduce what the podcast's goal is and what makes this podcast, the Genuine Judaism podcast, different than other podcasts that talk about Judaism. Oh, you want to have me read it? Oh, that's exciting. That was the point, yeah. Ah. And, and without further ado, uh, you know, we're going to play our little intro music for you right now and uh, make you feel... I'm going to obviously edit it in later, that would bound. He just looked at me. Exactly. And we're going to, and then we're going to get right into it. We're going to get into what this podcast should be, what it's for. David Brown's approach to Jewish questions and questions that arise in Jewish practice, how he goes about his Jewish lifestyle and question. And then my view on Judaism and how I approach my Jewish lifestyle. Um, And without further ado, David Brown, please take it away.
what is the goal of this podcast? Well, we want to make Judaism more than just tradition and, and, and rote practice. And we want to make it real. We want to show how it can make life more meaningful and how it could permeate into your very soul, how it can help you and how you can use it to help others. I think that's um, well written, David. I appreciate that. Uh, the second question was, what makes Genuine Judaism, the podcast, what makes our podcast different than other podcasts? Now, as David Chai knows very well, there are many other Jewish podcasts out there. I, I did not know that. Now, we simply believe that not enough of them go through the, the primary sources, through Tanakh and and. and and, and, and other sources, and compare and contrast to other cultures. So we want you to understand our tradition as seen through Tanakh, seen through, through, through the oral Torah and the, the sages, and, and, you know, whether they're, you know, from, the, from a thousand years ago or from, you know, 50 years ago, as well as the psychological and moral value of many of our traditions and their evolution. Okay, so thank you, David Brown, for that. I hope it's clear to everybody what this podcast strives to accomplish. We want to make sure that when people, when Jews live their Jewish lives, there's not this burning, well, actually, that there's a healthy burning desire to understand more about what it is that they're doing, and not, not, a, disdain for their, not a disdain for their practice, but a, a, real, a real hope to appreciate what it is that we do on a daily basis. You know, why do we put on tefillin? Why do we keep Shabbat? How do we get closer to Hashem, to God through these things? How do we become better through all these traditions that we observe? How do we become, uh, as, as, you know, as Moshe was proverbially called, how do we become Avdeh Hashem? How do we become servants of God? And this is the, this is the hope with our podcast. And, Besides for that hope, we also want to talk a little bit about our differing approach. How, we also want to show that there's not, one, there's not one distinct path to get there. That this is a very, it's a very individual process, but our hope is to provide more of, a, more of an example and more of like an arena of how to approach certain Jewish questions and how to approach Jewish growth um, from very different perspectives as we will both show you right now um so me and david brown have prepared a question uh, that will best describe our philosophies when approaching a jewish topic because when every uh, you know there's this famous overly famous saying that there's two jews and there's three opinions which goes to show that there's whenever there's jews in a room in an argument a machlokas a debate is a machloket if you so will is going to break out it's going to happen because no jews love to jews love to delve they love to learn more and they love to like kind of argue their points or whatever it is we we like to get to the root of things and we, we're not satisfied until we do and but everybody has a different way to approach it and david brown and i have very different avenues of approach to certain things and um, despite that, I think we make great chavrusas. Uh, that's I think that actually because of that we make great chavrusas. Um, you yep. know, when when both of us are feeling up to it, like at the, at the appropriate time. Uh, sometimes I don't have my coffee. Sometimes he doesn't have his coffee. It happens. And uh, but other than that, I think that in terms of our we le we learn a lot from each other because we're so different. 
even when approaching the same exact topic. Well said. Um, so, David, you want to you wanna ask every... I feel like you won't want to ask everyone the question because I feel like only I really have the, have the question here. No, I, 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 the question is, is legitimate question as it was addressed, as we'll get, we'll get to. So far, I'll, I'll lay it out there. We've got two verses, right, regarding the destruction of the first temple. Right? It says in Kings 2, right, or some people call it Second Kings or Malachim Bays, right? that would be chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, Parakhaf Hei, Psokim, Fes, and Yod. Sorry, Tes, Tes through Tes. It says on the right, in the fifth month, which is the month of Av, on the seventh of the month, right, which is the ninth the nineteenth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he sent his the uh, chief executioner Nebuzad Nebuzadran. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. And he came to Jerusalem, and the next passage says he burned the house of the Lord, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and he burned down the house of all of the big people. Okay, so here we have a clear statement that the destruction of the first temple was on the seventh of the month of Av. Now let's run over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 12 and 13. Very similar, except one key difference. On the tenth day of the fifth month, on the tenth of Av, which is the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, the, the chief of his executioners, to come to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the palace and all the house of Jerusalem and all the house of all the big people. Almost, almost identical language if you look at the verse inside. The only difference being that we have saw in Kings that it was in the seventh, and here we're saying that it was on the tenth. If we had celebrated, if, if we commemorated it on, on the seventh or commemorated it on the tenth, it would still be strange because, okay, we have this other verse that says it's on the other day, but we commemorated it on neither of those days. So we have two questions. One being, how do we reconcile these two verses? And two, how do we reconcile our practice with the, 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 with, with, with what we see here in Tanakh. Yes. So, Go on. Thankfully, we have uh, uh, the Talmud in Mesechus Tainus 29a. So how do we reconcile this? So the Gemara explains that the, that the Babylonians entered the sanctuary on the 7th, and the 7th and 8th, they desecrated it and did all sorts of of uh, not not nice things and that's the seventh and the eighth and then the ninth they set it on fire and in, in, in late in the day and when it finally was completely burned down was on the 10th so it was it wasn't a one day thing it was a three four day process where they came in they 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 mocked it and they desecrated it and then eventually burned so, and this is what Rabbi Yochanan says, Rabbi Yochanan says, if I was in that generation, I would have established the fast on the 10th of Av because most of the sanctuary was burned on that day. And the sages who established the fast on the 9th, they understand and they, the, the, uh, that 
the beginning of the destruction, when they started to burn it, since it was on the 9th, we, 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 we started to commemorate then, and we don't wait until it was actually burned down. So that, that, that would be the, the explanation from, um, from the Gemara and So what, now that, that leads into, into, into uh, David Chai's question. David Chai, you want to take it from here? Yeah, thank you, David, for explaining. It's very basic. You know, we, we fast every year on the 9th of Av to commemorate the destruction of the first and second temples. Um, we know that Tanakh is a, an earlier source, a prophetic source. And the Tanakh says that it was either the 7th of Av or the 10th of Av. It's a conflicting passage, really, kind of, uh, that, the, that the temple of Hashem burned down. Um, we don't we don't commemorate the first temple on those days at all. We commemorate it on the ninth of Av, and the Talmud attempts to reconcile, as David said, by saying that you know there were two days of uh, of penetrating the walls. There was the ninth when it began burning, and the tenth when it finished burning. So the simple question is: there, why do we? I know the Gemara attempts to say it was the ninth, but first of first off. Where does the Gemara get the, nine, the number 9 from? How do we know it was the ninth of Av? I, I understand the Gemara is attempting to reconcile, but usually we, we see more of, a, more of like a, a process to see how they figured out it was the ninth of Av. Second of all, the question is, and this is more the crux of um, the, our contemporary views on Judaism, this is more where, I guess, um, contemporary Jews will find their... Will find their um, their similarities to us, or we find our similarities with you, really, is nowadays we have this thing called scholarly study. And scholarly study we have, we have, is something where we have tools that, you know, let's say previous generations didn't have to be able to date certain things or to be able to find certain burial places of whatever, of like ancient tribes or ancient cities or ancient cultures. And so what would happen, considering that this isn't really an ironclad date the ninth of Av. It's not an ironclad date by any stretch of the of like besides for the fact that it is a it is our accepted custom which is very powerful. But if we're talking about objective truths about the date that the Beit HaMikdash was the second temple or the first temple of God was destroyed, if we're talking about an objective thing for which we should fast and we don't know if we have the objective date for it because there are conflicting accounts, were there to if there were new evidence that heavily pointed towards the seventh of Av or the tenth of Av, would we, as Jews, can we, as Jews, um, re restate our fast day to a different fast day? Or even if we didn't, can we say that the sages were wrong in assuming what they assumed, and or knowing what they knew at least at the time? So the basic question would be: if we found a would we be able to change it into the 10th of Av, if uh, the fast into the 10th of Av, if the situation, uh, if the evidence presented itself that way? And, you know, we already have, uh, I guess, just a sprinkle, uh, what's it called, to put the cherry on top of the cake. We already have, Sephardim are very strict on this, uh, you know, the, what's it called, Middle Eastern Jews are very strict on this. We do not, we actually continue many practices of the, ni- of the nine days, of the nine days of Av, onto the tenth day, because the tenth day, it is undis- indisputable that the temple was still burning and did not finish burning until the end of the tenth day. So we, uh, so we, still, we still follow that you shouldn't really have meat, you shouldn't really buy new clothing, you shouldn't do laundry. 
uh, we still have all of those considerations. So were there to be new evidence, can we use that evidence to file more in the, in the direct words of Tanakh rather than, the, rather than only the, our Misora, our heritage? Or is our heritage such a powerful thing that even in, the, even in light of new information, there, we must exercise a lot of caution or we must actually remain, remain true to our in, information, to our Misora? to the point that it would overshadow any new damning evidence that we find that it was the 10th of Av or the 7th of Av. Does that make I, sense? I think that's well said. I think that, that I would respond to that in two different ways. I think the, in the specific question can, can get a little bit convoluted. I think the general question, I, 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 I like the way that you said that at the end over there, that you know, any new information can become a little bit uh, overshadowed. But, but when it comes to this specific question, the more I think about it, the more I realize it's, it's what, 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 if we, what would the evidence say? The evidence would say that, no, the, the, the burning didn't actually begin on the 9th. It began on the 10th. Is that what it would supposedly say? Let's say even it said that, uh, well, fine. Let's say it's, it's, let's say it said that it started burning on the 10th. Let's say. Mm-hmm. This is all very hypothetical. None of this is. None of this. Yeah, is. of course, of course, of course. Yeah. So, the, the, when, if if we'll come down to that, it would simply be the words of of the Mishnah in 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 Tainus, the Mishnah over there that says that the the five things occurred on the fifth of on on the five things occurred on Shabbat Batamas and five things occurred on Tisha B'av, and he, and you know he says there that on the ninth of Av, temple is destroyed. So I have now I have evidence from the Talmud, and then you might bring evidence from you know something else. So why should I choose one over the other? Why should I choose the Talmud over the other evidence? And why should I choose the other evidence over the Talmud? Where, where are we giving credence to? Where does that question? How do, how do you approach that question? Yeah, I think that the only thing I'm not really sure I understand is: Do you mean? Any evidence regarding whether it's secular or traditional, or, or like, or as long as it's post Talmud, or what do you mean? Who, who, who should I believe? Simply uh, okay. put, and why? Oh, you're not asking me. You're you're stating the general the general. Uh, uh, but I, I guess I'm also asking you though. Okay, fine. I understand. So I I suppose that the main crux of the argument is, well, you made a good point. We 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 talked about this a little bit prior to the podcast. And you made a very good point to me. You said, you know, the sages spent their, they devoted their lives, really they devoted their lives, you know, to Judaism, to Hashem, to our values and to our, you know, to what God wants from us, basically. So why should you, why should we trust anyone other than them? And uh, I think that the answer to that is, well, if they had the information we had, would they have reconsidered their own their own approach as in they did not simply ignore everything around them they actually definitely made use of everything around themselves to help uh, to help mold their opinion you know we know for a fact that uh, the chachamim say you should not you know what's it called that you're allowed to gather wisdom from the nations but not torah right so there's we come to the conclusions about our faith and that right is reserved for us because we're the ones who put in the sweat, blood, and tears to get to, uh, to 
to become the best of the Hashem with what Hashem gave us. That's in our right. When it comes more to the, that, more than that, more than, more than even that, to discover the truth about about our own texts. Fair, fair enough. That that's fair. Uh, in the, to discover the truth about our own texts, fair enough. It shouldn't be in the hands of other other people. We can use them to whatever. It's you're right. But the idea is that they still took on. Uh, they very heavily. Uh, they very heavily. Uh, they were very familiar with the philosophies of surrounding cultures. You know, for example, and this is really, we all know Marcus Aurelius, the author of Meditations. Well, I mean, the author of his Meditations, whatever. Um, he was a student of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, right, I think? Yeah, yeah. Plato was a student of Jeremiah. Plato was Yermiel? Yep. Wow. Okay. I learned this recently. Fascinating. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. I think Plato said that he at first was found, found him to be a strange and like just a perplexing old timey dude and then after a while he realized that oh my god the guy this guy is like this guy is speaking quite i think he said the, he's speaking the words of the living god that's jeremiah all right that's what plato said about him. yeah um so we see that they ironically he, he figured that out but the other jews didn't it happens unfortunately a bit too often but regardless what i mean by that is that you see that the the chacham and the sages they they were very aware of the philosophies around them, like they weren't they weren't blind to it. They didn't just disregard it, you know, like the way a lot of a lot of people will now, you know, rightfully so, because I don't know if everybody has the proper mindset to be able to to navigate to navigate the waters of philosophy unharmed. You know, it's like it's a very it's a very intense game to play. Uh, most of it ends up in nihilism. As uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm sorry to bring up this name, David Brown. I know you're going to be very upset, but Dr. William Lane Craig. The guy who Rabbi <laughs> Tavia Singer always uh, always demolish the guy who Rabbi Tavia Singer always demolishes um, when it comes to questions about Christianity versus Judaism. Dr. Craig says a very interesting thing about religion and philosophy. He says, if you let philosophy, if you ever want to speak about the value of life from a theological perspective versus a uh, you know uh, versus a philosophical perspective, philosophy defeats itself because philosophy always ends up talking about how life is inherently valueless and how we're nothing in compared to the, when we're comparing ourselves to the future and to all of time. However, religion, you know, I know he's talking about Christianity, but Judaism places just as much and definitely more emphasis on the value of life. He, uh, Judaism and re- religion really espouses, you know, I'm going to go with Judaism. I'm just going to say that now. Judaism espouses the value of life to an extent that it's, to the extent that it makes us face our responsibilities it makes us be a part, a, a valuable part in almost, uh, in almost what's it called? What's something you can't lose? Like something you, you're not allowed to lose. Like um, it's, it's like, a, it's almost like a vital. It's an integral part of the inalienable. Uh, it, no, no, that's the wrong word. It's an integral part of society. Like we're our values, uh, our Jewish values are an integral part of society. Just ask anybody who needs to get more money from their refund on taxes. You know, Jews do that. No, but in all seriousness, uh, the you know we we provide this we provide this structure of being involved in our society in our community, as well as being involved with our families and with our friends, and you know, and building a healthy societal structure. This is an invaluable thing to the ongoing evolution of the world. And what's it called? You know, the Chachamim were able to. Kind of, and why I'm bringing this up is because that's religion. That's what Judaism does. You know, we we have a lot of these. You know, we could say uh, definitely beliefs 
We're brought up saying Shema Yisrael every night before bed, recognizing Hashem's oneness. We're, we're raised by that when we wake up, we say, Modeani, that God's faith in us is great. Thank you, Hashem, for bringing me back to life. We're raised with this understanding that life is inherently valuable. Now, as a philosopher, you can argue with that and say life is inherently meaningless. But you, but if you're talking to the masses, if you're talking to people, and you want the world to function, which most philosophers clearly don't, because if, like Nietzsche said, the philosopher's greatest fear is that he will be understood. Because Nietzsche just had no, no appreciation for life. So most philosophers, what they do is, they, uh, they start speaking about how their own life is worthless because they feel worthless or yada yada. And then they speak in abstract terms about how everyone's life is worthless. And most people aren't capable of hearing that and fighting it intellectually with an argument. And that's not saying most people are stupid. That's just saying that most people don't need to think intently about these things. The Chachamim were very aware of that. The sages were extremely aware of that. And what they did was, they knew, they said, we're allowed to know, you know, people who are, people should be vetted before they start going into philosophy and all this stuff. They knew all the philosophies of the world, right? They made, they made use of all the information available to them, right? So, they, so the, if they saw like a manuscript, like an archaeological manuscript sitting in the Tenth of Av, I think that they would have the proper, the proper uh, qualifications to determine whether that changes their position on what happened exactly during the ninth of Av and the 10th of Av. Um, and why I'm just leaning more towards, you know, being okay with that, with them, even potentially with us now, uh, were we to find such a piece of information that's so damning and that's so uh, seemingly trustworthy, why I would be almost okay with the turn to fast on the 10th of Av. Uh, I'm not saying practically, I'm just saying hypothetically, I would be okay with it because I think that they would have done the same thing. And I don't think it's too far out of our reach. Now, I think we should be very careful. I don't, again, I'm going to take a cue from the Chachamim here. For one thing, there's an interesting uh, uh, piece, of, piece of Gemara. I think it's in Nida. It talks about how long it takes for uh, the gender of a child to develop in the womb. Now, right. obviously, we're taking for granted that there are two genders. So you're <laughs> either going to be male or female. Right. And they're discussing how long it takes. And one of the rabbis pipes up and says, well, you know, Cleopatra, you know, had a bunch of maidservants who were like, you know, who were already given the death sentence. So figured, well, if we're going to be killing them, we might as well use them for some scientific experiments because, you know, why not? So Cleopatra got uh, all these uh, women uh, impregnated. And then 40 days after their conception, staggering, you know, different days after the conception, they would kill them and cut them open and observe the development of the fetus. And the Egyptians determined that in about 40 or 41 days, I can't remember exactly, was when uh, uh, certain, when, when I think maybe when it was clear that you were a male or I'm not sure. But either way, the development was done after 40 days. And the rabbi's response to this claim was like, I don't, I don't, I don't need this evidence. He said, "Very nice, cool, good stuff." I, he said, "I think the language was, I bring you evidence from the Torah, and you bring the evidence from fools." And that was, I think, that was the language. Was that when science, or not science, but when, 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 when the when the obvious evidence, right, aligns up with what we already understand to be true from the Torah, then great, they got it right, and we have enough confidence to say that when it does line up that they missed something it, it's a very 
it's a, there's a lot of confidence in that statement, and it and, and for some people it might be too confident, but it's 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 what 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 was it Jordan Peterson said? It was oral traditions are are a very powerful thing. That that we that they they have a lot more um, credibility than than they sound like they would right off the bat. That's a very good way of summarizing it. I agree. My my only my only I guess retort to that would be I mean not to get too much of, on a tangent here and it's really not to be a tangent but so, ever since the let's say the the discovery of science and you know and cells and chromosomes and all this and all that genetic code is actually found much earlier than 41 days. So we see that there was an update to that because now you know. First off, we would never allow an abortion now, the way that what we know, you know what I'm saying, by by our standards, because there's, unless it presents danger to the mother, yada, yada, okay, not important. But biological evidence did circumvent something that the, the Chachamim said they had, they had evidence for from the Torah, as in... Well, I, yeah, I, I wasn't saying that, that, that the, the, the 40 days was the beginning of life. It was the, 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 when the gender began to take shape. The, no, 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 in, but in, the chromosomes will tell you the gender, and that's earlier. Hmm. Okay, this, new, this is news to me then, so I don't know how to tell you. As in, there are other sages. Okay, so that I, I think that Gemara, there was a disagreement about the exact amount of weeks and the exact amount of days. I'm saying, in the end, we could use the science to support one opinion over the other. You know what I mean? Because the science is, in, in for lack of a better word, this type of science is irrefutable. Like, it's uh, there's... It's observable in, across every human being, you know, uh, what's it called? It, it's a universal truth that, you know, the males have the extra Y chromosome. Well, sure, no. sure. I, I'm not arguing on that. I think it was just very clear from the Gemara that, that th- this rabbi's opinion lined up perfectly with, it, with what was determined by this experiment by Cleopatra. But the rabbi wasn't interested in it. He didn't use it to buttress his opinion. He completely discarded it and said, very nice that it agrees with me. I don't care. I don't need it. So that's good, but so if anything, all that shows is that like rabbis, in their own opinion, might be very confident. They don't need like to say the back of no. That, but that also means that if the the scientific opinion would contradict it, that it means that the, the the coinciding with and 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 lining up with scientific opinion on whether it, it lines up with it or not with it is completely irrelevant. I mean, it's not it's not a factor at all in, in the eyes of the sages. Yeah, fair enough. But what if? Science, like, let's say an indisputable science the way we have it now um, showed more favor toward one opinion than the other they wouldn't they wouldn't include it in the conversation they would, they, it, would it wouldn't be part of it why would it not be a proof to one rabbi over the other though because so that, that was that it, it, it was brought as a proof the rabbi said i'm not interested in this as a proof i don't I, it, it's not. It's not. It's not a proof or a disproof. It's nothing. It's completely irrelevant information in, in when when it comes to that that topic of discussion. Now I, I get what you're saying, but the thing is, we could still use it. You're, you're saying we wouldn't even be able to use it to sway ourselves toward to sway us as a community toward the opinion of another rabbi. No, because you're opening Pandora's box there. Once I use it in one situation. To, to fix something, okay, now what happens when it's brought up in a situation that's problematic? What happens if, it, if, if science proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that, you know, the world is 60 billion years old? Now, now we have to deal with that. Now we have to address that. I don't, okay. Regardless, 
<laughs> let's not get into that question. But the idea is that if you don't allow science to enter the discussion, you just take for granted, not take for granted, but take Chachamim at their word, we risk, we risk a, we risk a, uh, we risk a willingness to be blind to new, to, to progress, I think. I, I grant that. I grant that. Mm-hmm. I think on the, on the risk on the other direction is just much greater. And the risk in the other direction is what we saw in what was called the Haskalah. Uh, which is basically Jewish enlightenment. And that basically led to the development of the reform and conservative movements, which uh, are more or less dead in the water at this point. And well, that's exactly. really where it, Yeah. But that just seems where it ends going. Even if you start off certain like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to you know, take it into consideration a little bit. It just, it doesn't seem like as Jews, we're not, we're, we're, it doesn't seem like we're very good at moderation. So it seems like we have to pick one or the other. <laughs> and it doesn't sound practical, but you know. Well, I I personally find the moderation argument to be very, very uh, like to be a very problematic argument. I, I think that Jews are very much about finding the balance between the between going to extremes. You know, that's the whole that's the that's the whole Rambam is about not being too far there, too far the other way. That, that's in a very specific context that that we're talking about over there with the Rambam. Well, yeah, it's in terms of character traits, but he also extends it to, you know, he brings it up when he talks about mitzvot, you know, he talks about like, let's say Ramban, right, Nachmanides, he talks about removing cruelty from the heart when it comes to the laws of kashrut, when it comes to the laws of Jewish, Jewish kosher law. But at the same time, you know, Chacham uh, say over and over that you shouldn't be too indulgent in anything, and you shouldn't be too, uh, what's it called, you shouldn't be too, uh, you shouldn't abstain too much from other things. You know, it's... Correct. Like it's a very, it was a very, uh, uh, like it was a very non-Jewish idea to abstain completely from marital intimacy or from physical intimacy. uh, What's it called? uh, You know, with one's wife, or like you know, to have, like, what's it called? To like have people who are so high up in the echelon of of intellectual greats that they deprive themselves of basic human pleasures like meat, like you know, chicken intimacy. You know, st- like what's it called? Beauty in nature, like living in li- living in trenches. That's not a Jewish idea. Now we might. Right. So the, my my the point being that when we talk about when we talk about our proclivity towards uh, um, our proclivity to f- from one from one bad path of being blind to new information and the other blind path of uh, what's it called um, of uh, kind of like you know risking assimilation. Assimilation is very bad, but in my in my personal opinion, I think there was <clears throat> there always was assimilation, and you know you see you see Chachamim throughout the ages always combating it. But assimilation is going to happen. People are individual beings. Now, if you risk turning a blind eye, we be, we become, in my opinion, we become a group that can't really be looked at as a as a virtuous group because we just shut out we shut out everything else from our lives. And that's a very dangerous game. Uh, yeah. On the same, this is two sides of the same coin. You know, when you have a, a, a little bit of a blindness, the, you know, that's at the, at the end of the day, you can have, that's come down to an, uh, on an individual basis. You have people that are more open to other opinions. You've got someone, you're slightly more open to things than I am. And there are people who are a lot less open to things than I am. So you've got, you know, the individuality there, just like you've got on the other side. So at the end of the day, and this is really one of 
my big things is that it always just comes down to individual people's choices. We can, we can make generalized statements, but it always comes down to the individual at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think it is incumbent upon an individual to, we don't, you know, when we see something that, you know, uh, uh, something that comes out, we don't say, you know, oh, we don't listen to anything that, that, that contradicts our faith. No, that, that's not the message here. We're, we're not afraid of challenges. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, is, is creating a, a false equivalency. That's what I'm concerned about. It, it, it's that when it comes to, you know, when it comes to, you know, scientific matters, we have no qualms. We have no problem arguing about, oh, you know, the sky is blue because, I'm sorry, the water is blue in the ocean because it's a reflection of the sky, Right. So we're not. There's no. There's nothing at stake there. We're not bothered by such a thing. It's really when something. I guess evolution is a good example. Even though you could try, you could go ahead and you can, uh, you can make it work. You can, you know, arrange things in a way that the Torah. The, the Torah's account of creation is compatible with evolution. If you really try hard enough, you can do it. But why, why, we, why put ourselves in that position of saying, well, everything, anything that comes out uh, um, from the scientific field, we should accept without question. But what comes out of our own text, we should scrutinize, and, uh, but, but, not, but not the other way around. Why do we not scrutinize the other way? Why do we not? We should scrutinize everything. We, we're, we're always quick to scrutinize our own traditions, our own text, and, and our own understandings. But, but when it comes, when the, the, a pop, not popular, but a contemporary uh, uh, you know, discovery comes out, and there's no questioning of that whatsoever. Well, I I don't know if I would grant you that olive branch so easily. I think that we scrutinize. I'm I'm I pointed out scientific things that were indisputable, and but there is science that's disputable. You know, whatever with the situation of the world, not to get to political. There's been indisputable things that have become disputable. Like, fine, whatever. Like, it's fine. You, you, I'm, I'm, the world is flat. How about that? Okay, I'm not. I'm not opposed to scrutinizing, scrutinizing science at all, but science just happens to be a field where there's observable, uh, what's it called, like observable um, realities that are true, that are, are that are true on a consistent basis, and you know. But when it comes to like you know, when it comes to our traditions, when it comes to our previous history, things that we don't really remember, uh, what's it called, and we can't really remember except for the traditions we built up for, uh, we've built for them. We can use science and what's available to us as, you know, almost indisputable facts, or we can use indisputable facts that we find to deepen our understanding of the traditions that... that, that I, I, do, I do agree that you, there is a use for it. I, I wouldn't sit here and say that we should completely disregard it. It's just that it do, when a question comes up, when there's a contradiction between something we know from the Torah and something that comes up in science, it doesn't concern me. It doesn't really bother me like it would i guess like it might have used to that's because i don't have the the same i don't have the false equivalency a lot of different ways that 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 you know something like that can come up you understand though the what's it called like i understand what you're saying you understand what i'm saying i think we're looking at different risk factors here so i guess what i'm hearing from what i'm hearing from you and what i'm hearing from myself and tell me if this is fair is from myself, I think I'm very much of the opinion that we shouldn't be really 
afraid to admit that some things might pose a question to Jewish uh, understanding of things. You know, like, let's say, uh, evolution I don't grant, really. I, I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's a, it's good enough of a theory to even grant a question. But let's say the Big Bang, right? Like, you know, or stuff like that. We, actually, the Big Bang proves Judaism. I'm thinking of bad examples. Um, proves creation, at least. Um, but I, I don't know, like, uh, what is it? Fine, let's say evolution. Let's grant evolution its, uh, its moment in the spotlight that it's... There's really not that much when you actually think about it, ironically. Right. But let's grant evolution for a second, even though I think it's a very weak, weak uh, bargaining chip. Um, let's grant evolution, right? We can admit, we could admit for what's it called, for whatever, among the, among like, let's say the, uh, the people who are delving into these matters, they could admit that maybe perhaps evolution poses some problem as to how life is portrayed in Bereshit versus how life, is, how life actually came to evolve. You know, there's, there's resolutions to this that don't need to be scientific. Like, you know, we can, uh, we can argue, we're, we're talking about Torah and we're speaking against science. Uh, oh, so, uh, sorry. And we're, we're like looking at science as though it can kind of, it can kind of go against Torah, but that's not my point. My point is more that like, we can, we can, uh, we can accept science that seems to go against Torah and say it's problematic to how we looked at the Torah a certain time before, you know, like we looked at Bereshit very literally, right? And a lot of people, even very orthodox authorities, have gone to say, you know, there's even, I think Rabbi Soloveitchik, if I'm not, actually, I don't want to throw the name around, but uh, I, I, there's this idea of Bereshit, Aleph and Bereshit Bet, you know, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. There's a very literal, there's a very metaphorical, you know, the, Bible, uh, the Torah is not a book of science, as people say, and it was never meant to portray a scientific truth. Um, that goes against a lot of what previous people said, but <clears throat> based on new evidence, I don't think it's a problem to admit. Uh, I think it actually makes it stronger to admit that, like maybe uh, the Torah's account wasn't so literal, you know. And that's fine with me if it isn't literal. Like you know, I think it's still the most powerful truth to exist because there's no story like on a Menchava. Yeah, but how much how much ground are you willing to cede? How much what? How much ground? Meaning, it, what? So they can take away the the literal interpretation. So what happens when I don't know how this works practically? You come out with new evidence that disputes the the more abstract interpretation. I don't know how that would work in reality, but you're just seeding ground. We're saying, okay, well, I'll give you that, but we still have a leg to stand on somewhere else. So we'll just go stand over there. You know, you're seeding all the all the, all the power. Well, but the thing is that if you look at the way Chachamim talk about all the all the all the things they approach, they usually bring it to teach you a lesson about something. And the Torah is really a book of lessons on life. You know, if you, I know it's sure. a little, not, not to exclude the, 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 the simple explanation. They, they, they're, they're both, they're both, they both have to be true. If you know, I, okay, fine. But I'm just saying that there is, there is room to, there is room to give up. Yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to all go outside and, and, and you know and throw our throw our yarmulkes into a bonfire every time you know the scientific community comes up with something troublesome. That's not really the concern here. Obviously, there's we can we're we're smart enough as as you know as JP likes to say as Ashkenazi Jews you know we're or, or at least that's for me um, <laughs> smart enough to to. to to reconcile it and say, okay, well, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a question, but we can, um, we can, 
we can still be okay. We'll still be able to get up in the morning. But that, that's not really what we're talking about here. Of course, we can reconcile things. Of course, we can make things, you know, we can come up with any answer we want. But I don't, I don't know why it has to get to that point in the first place. Well, because, the, because when it comes to that, you're showing that we're not afraid. We're not afraid of questions by backing but away. But it is, though. It no, is, because you're opposite. seeding the ground. You're saying that it used to be that it was true on a literal and an, and an allegorical thing. But now it's only true allegorically. So you're seeding ground. No, okay. So now I think, I think in my opinion, I think that I'm hearing fr- from you something I hear from atheists all the time um, or, or very, very uh, high religious advocates. You see, we think that to concede a point that we held dear was, is to like give up some of the beauty of the Torah. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think that it's the opposite. I think that if you can grant, like, let's, let's say this, right? Like, let's say um, the people nowadays who like so much, you know, defend the science, defend the science, yada, yada. Um, uh, what's it called about? Like, let's say the, actually, I shouldn't make this political. Fine, whatever. Let's say the people nowadays who are so defending the science. Well, I was going to talk about the COVID stuff and everything, but. Uh, yeah, don't, 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 don't get into vaccines. Whatever you do, don't start talking just, about vaccines or COVID. I'm just saying that the respect, the, the scientists that you can respect are the ones who, given new evidence, can change their mind. But we see that a lot of people in science, even in the scientific community, couldn't change their mind based on new evidence. And we lose respect for those people. Now, you know, there's Chachamim out there nowadays, uh, whatever, I don't really call them Chachamim, but they're dubbed Chachamim, that they can't give up a point, or what they consider giving up a point, when really, in reality, I think it would make their point so much stronger. Like, I think that, uh, what's it called? I, I think that a lot of rabbis nowadays so much struggle to, uh, to, what's it called, to, like, really delve into the ideas that science purports that kind of seem to pose a real question to Judaism, that they, they lose sight of what it is, that they, they lose sight of what it is that the Torah is all about. You know, they try to make the Torah a scientific text, but it's not. We all know it's not. Like, it's, it, there's nothing in the Torah that's scientific, and that's not a bad thing. Science is meant for one very particular aspect of life. It's not like an all-encompassing thing, as much as people like to think it is. It's um, uh, I was I just had a great example in my head, and it flew by. Um, <clears throat> but fine, regardless. Uh, uh, I had such a great example. Uh, you know that f- that f- fleeting thought, uh, uh, like what a yeah, or something. Whatever, fine. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. But the the whole the whole idea is that like we're not we're not scared to back <laughs> we're not scared to be backed into a corner because if anything it just it makes us look at things in a new way and perhaps an even more powerful way. You know, like I if I looked at the Torah personally, if I looked at it as a if I looked at the sheet at the story of creation as a purely scientific matter, it would be very dry to me. Like I wouldn't find beauty in it. You know, art school and their chumashim. But on the other hand, you know, art school and their chumashim paints a very beautiful picture of the of the Torah's account of creation, and it shows a picture of like you know, it's like se- six, seven squares, six squares, rectangles, whatever. On the first rectangle is just you know light and darkness, what Hashem created on the first day. On the second rectangle is the second day, and etc. To the sixth day. Now you see in these rectangles they're progressive; they go from left to right. And you see, little by little, the earth fills up in a natural progression almost. You see, to me, as a layman in science, maybe, or whatever, um, as a layman in, like, trying to think, like, understand all the, all the evolutions that had to take place for the earth to become the way it is, 
I find that beautiful. I find that the earth was filled with God, you know, with uh, with God's beauty and the and this and all this and all that. And the w- w- world in the art scroll, you know, in the art scroll for Mushroom, it's painted as progressively changing during those six days and being filled up. And it's a very it's a very beautiful thing to understand that this is how Hashem meant for the world to be filled up. Um, but the the on the other hand, if you take it very scientifically. And you say that like, oh no, this is how it happened. You know, this is like the A, B, and C. This is the order. This is the steps. This is the literal way it happened. There's no other way to interpret it. To me, that just loses its beauty. It makes it like I have to believe some kind of dry truth rather than understand a deeper concept that this unbelievably deep passage is trying to you know fill my head with. Well, ideally, the the I think Rashi says this. No, it wasn't Rashi. It was the Malbim. It says that these, these, uh, the allegory and the, the depth and the beauty that, that people tend to find, which usually they don't find in the simple explanation, you don't find it in the Pashup Shat. I think it was the language of the Malbim was that the Drush, Hadrush Hu Apshat, the Omek Kalashan. I think they said the So the, the depth, the, all the depth that you're finding and all the depth that people. Uh, that the people who do find any enjoyment in it, that that's where they find it. They find it in the drush. The drush is not, it's, it, it, it's built. It's not, it can't be separated from the simple explanation. The simple explanation is not something that can be discarded because once we have the, the general abstract idea, now we can discard with the, with the building block that got us there. But it's, it's more than that. The, the, without the simple, the simple understanding and, and the allegory, they always come together. Whether or not we can always see that in, clearly in front of us is is another thing, but when you do see it, it's fascinating and it's 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 much more meaningful when you when those two things come together. When what appear, originally appeared to be often the reason it's dried us is just we just don't have an understanding of it. And once we get an understanding of it, everything makes perfect sense. But until then, it's totally dry and it's stale and it's, it just sounds like okay, very nice. Okay, we know the biblical account, very nice. But a lot of times it's just for lack of understanding. I'm, I'm not saying that every single, I'm not sure exactly what I'm saying there, but I started to ramble again. That's I forgot okay, what the becoming, question We're doing a role reversal. Yeah, yeah. I forgot what the question was, though. The question was, why not? I don't think it's conceding ground to shift our understanding of something in the Torah. Now, your, your right, worry so, was how... Uh, what, yeah. When does when exactly when does the shift? At what point does, do you can you say that, that, that enough's enough? I mean, when do you say okay, we've shifted enough and we've moved off of our, we first we believed this, but then then the science came out against that, so we moved on to this, and the science came out against that, so we moved on to this. At what point do we say okay, maybe we should maybe we're going to question that a little bit and maybe maybe challenge that? That's a very fair point. Where uh, is that? That's a very fair point. I, I remember once hearing. Uh, uh, some somebody's lectures that I go to, I don't know if I want me to specify his name, but he said that, you know, the Ramban was asked point blank, do Jews share any fundamental beliefs of faith? You know, Christians have the Trinity, the Messiah, Jesus Christ as we born. Do Jews share any fundamental things of faith? And the Ramban says, the only thing that we share fundamentally is that Hashem is one. That's That's our whole thing. That's our spiel. Fundamentally, Hashem is one. Now, does that mean the Ramban didn't keep Shabbos or Tfilin or Shabbat or Tfilin or, you know, all this stuff? No, of course not. But it points to the fact that in the end of the day, 
we don't have any actual fundamental things that we need to believe in to be a Jew. Now, you could say there's the 13 Ikarim, the 13 fundamental things to believe in. Not everybody believes in those, including sages, by the way. I'm just There are other accounts of it. Um, and I, I, you know that there's the Shisha Ikarim, there's like, whatever, there's other stuff. Oh, sorry, that's Shisha Mitzvah, whatever. Um, but the, it, it just happens to be that, uh, what's it called? It just happens to be that we don't actually have any fundamental beliefs the way other religions do, you know? We, uh, except for what's, you know, explicitly stated in Tanakh, like, you know, we, now we believe, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we, after we sinned, we believe that there is going, we know that there's going to be an Alam Haba, there's going to be something after this. We're just not sure how it's going to be brought out. You know, it could be a very natural progression. It could be a very supernatural progression. We have no idea. Now, the way you choose to think about it will mold your life a little bit. But um, it, we don't have any actual beliefs about it. So where do we where do we draw the line? We draw the line at like at what in our own heads or or whatever. What in our culture would make it that um, our culture is no longer you know under the auspices of one God? So if we don't like, let's say that's why we always call Jews Shomer Shabbat, right? My, my Rebbe and Aish always said this. Why, how do you call an observant Jew? You say Shomer Shabbat. Somebody observes the Shabbat. And it's because it's the it's the one thing you see that's kind of that's kind of brought up throughout Tanakh as being very fundamental to the Jew. You know, Yeshaya says in Tashim Shabbat Raglecha, if you don't, if you stay away from all your mundane topics on Shabbat, I'll uh, what's it called? You know, I'll do this and I'll uh, uh, yeah, whatever. You'll be with Hashem and you'll glorify. You'll be uh, happy with His presence. And it's brought up in context of other mitzvot that we do, other commandments. There's the Exodus from Egypt. We have to remember. There's all this stuff, and as long as we don't lose those basic tenets of our faith, those basic understandings of who we are, of what we're meant to do, which we keep, which I think, by the way, gets lost as we're brought up, um, is, is just, that's what keeps us grounded. You know, there's nothing wrong. We don't need to believe that the story of Bereshit was literal. There's no halachic requirement for that at all. It doesn't mold our Judaism. Like, it's not, we're not, we're not going to get rejected from Shemayim. If we don't think it was literal, you know what I mean? We'll get rejected from Shemayim specifically, like, you know, explicitly as it says, if we don't observe the Shabbat, if we call God's ways a disgrace, that's, we don't accept, we don't get accepted into heaven for that. Well, we're not really discussing here what's, what's going to get you into heaven. We're, we're discussing what we believe to be true or not, you know, regardless of the consequences. Well, we're discussing more how much ground we're willing to give up. Um, in terms right. of so, 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 so if, if, you, if you believe something's true, what, what are we do? We're not really discussing here. I mean, we're discussing on, on two fronts, you know, how did, how can it work practically in terms of, okay, where, how much ground can we see? And I think that's a problem that your answer you're giving is, is very problematic because, okay, so we're willing to see ground up until the point where it becomes uh, uh, a real affront on the entire faith. So, it's kind of analogous. I don't know if that's the word analogous. Analogous. To, to, I guess, like, you know, you have, you know, you have a country that's surrounded, you're, you're in a country and you're surrounded by many other countries. And an, and other, another nation comes and starts attacking your neighboring countries. And you say, oh, we don't have to worry about them. I mean, you don't wait until you have stage four cancer to go to the doctor. You know, you try to hit it. You try to you try to to address something like that as early as possible. So that, that I think is why practically it's a problem. But 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 besides from the practical point, if we believe that it's true, so 
all of a sudden now something comes along that is is making that a little bit more difficult. So we're just like, okay, well, on to the next one. You know, we see that point. Like, why? Let's let's engage in it. Let's discuss it. Why do we not question that? We 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 always question the text. We always question it, and we should. But we don't. And I said this already before. We just when something comes out of the scientific community, like, oh, it's peer reviewed. It must be true. Oh, granted, maybe in 10 years they'll come out and they'll find out that, you know, that experiment was faulty, there was a missing control, or they just, you know, the, all sorts of problems that can come up and then have come up. We just, we just take it, we don't, even, we don't even take it with a grain of salt. We just accept it wholeheartedly. I, well, again, I never said you should scrutinize, scrutinize science. I, I said you should scrutinize science. I, I don't know why. No, no, I'm not arguing with you. Well, the thing about scrutinizing our own faith when it comes to our text is that we're not, we're not trying to disprove our text. We're trying to understand what God wants us to understand from what we don't understand. Like, sorry, God, the Torah is written in a way that's meant for you to ask. Sure. Sure. Like you know, there's not. You can't read the Torah and just have no questions. Like, oh, this Torah makes perfect sense to me because it won't. It shouldn't because there's many conflicting passages, and they're meant to take out. They're right. meant to. They're meant to ignite in you a, a desire to find out. You know, science, however, it kind of draws a line to itself. It says that, like, it kind of makes itself authoritarian. It says, you shouldn't question me. And that's one of its flaws. But in the authoritarian, you know, uh, mindset it's adopted, there's some justification because some things in it are indisputable. <clears throat> and those sometimes those, those little flakes of indisputable knowledge um, that science somehow, uh, you know, uh, enlightens us with, sometimes conflate with the Jewish traditions or values we were brought up with. And those are really the only intersections that we are concerned with right now, and, and in general, because those uh, this is what we should be concerned with, at least, right? Like, we don't, need to make a, we don't need to rise up every time there's some kind of new bit of scientific evidence that points slightly towards one thing or the other. <laughs> but when we have the big topics that all the atheists are bringing up to disprove Judaism, or that, or that is taking a lot of people off the derech, as you may call it, there needs to be a call to action. The call to action can't be ignorance because that's what throws people off. You know, you can't just like say that, oh, I would never even consider this possibility because that just... Sure. Okay, so, so now we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not discussing the same thing now, though. I agree with you. I agree with you when it comes to combating certain things like that. You have to take a different approach. That I, I, I 100% agree with. When, well, I, I'm, I'm, I think this, practically it becomes different in every situation. If we're talking about it absolutely, it's, it's something else. Uh, I don't. I, don't, I think we're, we're we're. I think we've illustrated. I think the difference enough. I don't think we're going to come to a conclusion. I think this is more of a of a long form discussion that you know takes place over the course of like several years. Mm-hmm. But I think I think for for the purposes of this of what we're doing now, I think we for sure have illustrated the the difference in approach. Right and. Um... I guess we're just on the, we're like in the, we're like in the middle, but a little bit, but shifted towards each of us. Yeah. Um, in a fun and in a fun and exotic way. Right. Okay, fair enough. So um, I hope that yeah. people hop, where people understand where we, where our paths cro- uh, diverge and where they meet. Uh, what's it called? I hope this gives people an understanding of how we approach um, our lives in Judaism and our podcast in general and the, the topics we bring up. Um, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Bye.